0: Heavenly Father, uh, with the world in turmoil and fear and concern everywhere these days, Father, we're so thankful that we rest in the, in the salvation we have in Christ. We stand on the rock, and Father, we also can uh, rely on the unchanging Word of God. And Father, crises will come and go. Uh, the days we live in, Father, are destined to be like this. As you've told us, it's just a matter of time, Father, before all of this brings itself to its climactic end, which is what we study. And I thank you, Father, that we can know about these things so that we can have hope and peace in the midst of a storm. And Father, as we learn these things, I pray, Father, it would not only give us increased uh, certainty and, and comfort of what is yet to come, but in the meantime, even in the days we live, I pray, Father, it would also give us a peace of mind that you sit on your throne, the earth is still turning, the days are still coming as you planned them, and The world is what it is, Father, but we are not part of it. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're gonna rejoin the final battle of our age, the War of Armageddon, in our study tonight, or as the Bible calls it, the War of the Great Day of God. And like most wars, Armageddon isn't one battle that uh, takes place in just a single moment. It's a series of events, and these events happen over days and weeks. And the war itself is the concluding uh, scene, the concluding series of events for the whole of tribulation. And in the midst of this war that's going to take a period of time, in the midst of the War of Armageddon, right near the end but still in the middle of it, that's when Christ returns. So Christ's return is itself not a single moment. It is a series of events that fit into the larger plan of God in this war, and in the way we studied in chapter 19, chapter 19 leaves out virtually all the details of what I just described, because at this point in the book, at this point in the Bible, last book of the Bible, near the end of the book, at that point, if you're a student of Scripture, you've studied, hopefully, the other books of the Bible. You understand the big picture from what they teach, and so it's not necessary for John in chapter 19 of Revelation to, to review all of that. He just brings us to the main point, the summary, Jesus' return. So as we did last week, we have to spend significant time outside the book of Revelation in order to understand the detailed events of what's going on here at the second coming. So we've looked at this chart before, and in this chart you have a bit of an overview, obviously, of all the happens in the last series of judgments, how they relate to the various chapters that we're studying. And as it stands right now, we're looking at chapter 19, which is a chapter that relates to the last three stages of the War of Armageddon. And what I want to do tonight as we get back into it is, is quickly remind you of all the stages, because understanding the movement is important. Flow, the flow of all this is important. So, so far, we have studied Stages one, two, and three of the war. Stage one was when the sixth trumpet judgment was blown, resulting in the river Euphrates drying up, no longer a bloody river, but now dry. And the Lord now lures the Antichrist out of Babylon, and he travels westward into northern Israel, the Jezreel Valley, where he camps for a time preparing to invade Jerusalem. And that is the first stage. Of the War of Armageddon, it's really not a battle. Obviously, it's a movement of forces, but it sets up what comes next. the The intent here, of course, was to position himself to come into Jerusalem eventually, and later into Petra, and crush the resistance that still remains at this at this point in tribulation. And that resistance is a set of uh, two groups of Jewish uh, holdouts: those in Petra that God has placed, and those in the city of Jerusalem who are not yet believing. All right. While they are gathered in the Jezreel Valley, stage two of this battle commences back in Babylon. As you remember, two of the seven kings that have given their power to the Antichrist begin to rebel against him. And as they do, they invade the capital city of Babylon while he's away, seeing that opportunity. And after they invade, then the Lord brings the seventh bowl judgment which destroys the city and those forces that have just invaded. The invaders themselves are crushed by the seventh bold judgment. And now with the Antichrist's city in ruins, he, being in Israel, has no choice but to press forward in his battle because he has nothing to go back to, which was the whole point. God has ensured that he lures the enemy into a battle in Jerusalem. That leads us to stage three. And in stage three of the war, The Antichrist moves his forces now southward in anger, the Bible told us. And he ends up in the central valley of Israel, moving up then eastward through the Shephelah, which are the foothills that lead us up to Jerusalem. And eventually he reaches a point around the city, surrounding the city, sieging the city of Jerusalem. And now because the time of tribulation and all the judgments that happen in it they've reduced society to this rudimentary level of technology. As a result, the warfare that breaks out around Jerusalem is of a medieval style. You have Zechariah and other Old Testament prophets telling us that the Antichrist will use siege ramps and horses and swords and the like. Why? Because that's all that's left at this point. And for the very same reason, the Jews who are in the city of Jerusalem are protected to an extent by that wall that surrounds the city because we're back to a day when walls are effective defenses against invading armies. Now, during the siege, we studied last week how the Lord supernaturally intervenes to defend the city to a degree such that the Antichrist isn't able to take the city fully. We'll study more of that tonight. And as that battle is ensuing, the people who are in the city recognize that something's happening. They should be defeated more easily And they recognize the Lord who is at work fighting the battle for them. And it turns their mind to him. They rejoice. Ultimately, it will be part of how the Lord turns them to repentance. Meanwhile, in this third stage, there's another front of the war that opens up. The first front is Jerusalem. The second front, though, is in Petra, or as we call it, Batsra in the Bible. This is the place in southern Jordan where God has placed some uh, of Jews on the earth, all believing Jews, for the last half of tribulation. This is the place that he prepared for them to keep them safe. And the Antichrist knows that they're there. Remember, Satan initially tried to destroy the fleeing Jews who left Jerusalem for this location, but God defended his people like he protected them during the Exodus. So they managed to get into this stronghold. They've been there now three and a half years. But Satan has not lost his interest in defeating them. So now that he's indwelling the Antichrist, and now that the Antichrist is on the move with his forces, He calls back to those forces that he has still around Babylon, some that escaped the battle, some that still managed to survive the attack. And he calls for them to come and fight a second front against the other group of Jews that are still remaining on earth, those in Petra. So we have two fronts now engaged in a siege, one in Jerusalem, one in Batra, both made up of the Antichrist forces, And for the most part, there is no other civilization left on Earth. There are people certainly scattered about, refugees of one kind or another, but from the standpoint of any survivable, livable place, you're down to Jerusalem and Petra. And even then, all the water sources of the world have been turned to blood. We're not sure what supply might be left at this point. There's a sense of urgency among all who live on Earth that whatever comes next, it can't last much longer. We're literally down to days and hours before the earth is unlivable and all life is extinguished. All right, tonight we move forward on both fronts to a degree, but we begin with the movement of the Lord himself from heaven down to earth to become personally involved in these events. And we start that examination by remembering first the purpose of tribulation itself. This will take us back a few lessons and remind you of some important concepts which now come to bear on the events. And we go back for one moment to Daniel chapter 9. And in Daniel 9:24, we were told the six reasons why God puts the earth through a tribulation. And not just the tribulation, but the entire period of the age of the Gentiles, all 490 years plus the period of the church as we studied. And Daniel 9 gave us these six reasons. He says, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people, meaning for the Jewish people, and for your holy city. And here are the reasons. To finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make an atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Now, we covered this months back in our studies uh, around chapter 5, and at the time we studied this, we looked at what this meant, and we understood that Daniel was being told by the angel that visited him that there would be a period of history on earth for Israel in which the nation would undergo judgment. They would be exiled from their land, they'd be under the the heel, as it were, of Gentile nations, and it was a, a punishment for them as a result of failing to keep the Old Covenant. And among the things that this period of history would accomplish is it would bring an end to sin in Israel and usher in everlasting righteousness. In other words, it would bring Israel back to holiness from where they were, of course, which was ungodliness and rebellion. So simply put, what does tribulation accomplish for Israel? It brings saving faith to all Israel causing all of them, that is, all who are alive, to return to the Lord. And the Lord accomplishes this by placing the nation in an incredibly difficult situation following seven years of intense trial, a pressure cooker that brings them to this outcome. And the very lowest point for Israel in the entire seven years is right now in our story. And it's right before the Lord reveals himself to them and they call out to him. So let's go to the Antichrist's siege against Jerusalem. And the prophet Zechariah tells us a little about how that battle will ensue. Starting in chapter 13, verse eight, he says, "'It will come about in all the land, declares the Lord, "'that two parts in it will be cut off and perish, "'but the third will be left in it. "'And I will bring the third part through the fire, "'refine them as silver is refined "'and test them as gold is tested. "'They will call on my name.' I will answer them. I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God." It's a great summary of the effect of tribulation. Earlier in this study, you remember that we said that the tribulation period was made necessary for Israel because they had an agreement with God. We call it the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant. And in that covenant, the Lord told Israel that unless the entire nation kept the law in that covenant perfectly, for all generations, they would suffer consequences. And the consequences that God said they would suffer for failing to keep the law perfectly would be severe. And in fact, he warned them, they ought to think twice about agreeing to this covenant. Moses said this to the generation of Israel that was to agree with this covenant. In Deuteronomy twenty-nine fourteen. he says, Now, not with you alone am I making this covenant and this oath, but both with those who stand here with us today in the presence of the Lord our God and with those who are not with us here today. For you know how we lived in the land of Egypt and how we came through the midst of the nations through which you passed. Moreover, you have seen their abominations and their idols of wood, stone, silver, and gold, which they had with them. So that there will not be among you a man or a woman or a family or a tribe whose heart turns away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations, that there will not be among you a root bearing poisonous fruit and wormwood. So, This takes us back to the point when they're in the desert, Israel has left Egypt, and after the first generation had died out 40 years from their disobedience, this new generation gets another opportunity to agree to the covenant. And Moses says to them, and this is important, he says, this is a national arrangement we're making here. That is, he says, I'm not just making this covenant with you who stand here today, I'm making it with your descendants as well. You're binding, not just yourselves, but everyone who comes after you in the nation of Israel to these terms. So the requirement of the covenant and the consequences for not keeping it will apply to every Jew equally from that point forward. And that set a standard. The Mosaic covenant set a standard for God's relationship with his people. And that standard continues even till today. That is, as the individual Jew goes, so goes the nation. As the nation goes, so goes the individual. When it comes to the Mosaic Covenant. Now, ultimately, this covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, is fulfilled. And until it's fulfilled, the nation will have to keep its terms. Now, how does it get fulfilled? Well, for an individual Jew who comes to faith in Jesus, well, then they have come out from under the law because Christ fulfills the law through his own life on their behalf. No different than you or me, although we've never been under the law, we're not Jewish. But, For a Jew who has been under the law of Moses, they come out from under it as they come to faith in their Messiah. Paul says in Romans 7, 4. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. While we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But notice, but now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound so that we may serve in newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. So a Christian is not under the law of Moses, and certainly a Jew isn't either if they've come to faith. So in that sense, all the curses, all the penalties of the law, everything that the law requires for Israel, you are freed from that future as a Jew when you come to faith in Jesus. That's why a Jew who comes to faith today in Jesus, we call them a Christian because everyone's part of the same body, But that's why they don't participate in the tribulation. That's why they're taken off the earth with the rest of the church at the time of Christ's coming, at the resurrection, because they've escaped from those penalties. But their brethren are still under them. That is, the nation still is under that covenant. And until the whole nation is released from the law, the law still has a purpose for them. That's why Jesus said to the Pharisees that he was not here to remove the law and that everything in the law will be done before it's finally finished. But individually, you can be released from it by faith. But apart from a remnant of Israel that comes to faith, apart from them, the rest of the nation of Israel, Jews who are on the earth, are bound to the law, and as a result, they're also bound to the penalties that the law requires when Israel didn't keep it. And in Deuteronomy 29, the Lord goes on to say that when, not if, but when Israel fails to keep that covenant, he will bring certain penalties, which he calls curses against the nation. And those curses would follow future generations because, as we said, this covenant isn't just for one generation. It is for the whole nation. Moreover, the penalties aren't applied individually. They're applied to the whole nation. So if anyone in the nation fails to keep the covenant, the whole nation sees the curses of that covenant. It is a national agreement. And Moses says it this way in Deuteronomy 29, 22. Now the generation to come, your sons who rise up after you and the foreigner who comes from a distant land, when they see the plagues of the land and the diseases with which the Lord has afflicted it, they will say, all its land is brimstone and salt, a burning waste, unsown and unproductive. No grass grows in it like the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adam and Zeboim, which the Lord overthrew in his anger and in his wrath. All the nations will say, why has the Lord done this to this land? Why this great outburst of anger? Then men will say, because they forsook the covenant of the Lord, the God of their fathers, which he made with them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. Now notice the judgments that are described here affect future generations, but also notice the nature of them here are such that we've never seen that experienced in Israel. Not in the full sense of burning salt, burning waste, etc. In other words, this is a description of a level of devastation that's yet to happen. We're looking at a future description here of what will happen during tribulation to Israel as a part of the curses. And the effect of that devastation will be to cause those who see it to recognize this is evidence that they have failed to keep the old covenant. This is exactly what the scripture said was coming. Now, with those curses coming on Israel as a result of the Old Covenant, though they are severe, they are also evidence of God's grace. How is that true? Well, because they ultimately lead to good. First, as we learned earlier in this study, this period of Israel's judgment will eventually give rise to Israel's salvation. But it also gave opportunity for Gentiles, remember? that because Israel was placed under this period of judgment called the age of the Gentiles, it opened up the opportunity for the period of the church to exist on earth. So there is the church age made possible by the fact that God held Israel accountable to this old covenant, and it eventually becomes the instrument by which God turns them back to himself. Remember what Paul said in Romans chapter 11. He says, in speaking about this fact that Israel has been set aside, he says, well, what then? What Israel is seeking, it is not obtained, but those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. That's speaking to the fact that Israel, as a nation, was set aside from receiving their Messiah as a consequence of failing to keep the old covenant. Then he goes on to say, though, I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? Well, may it never be. Now notice the turn here. By their transgression, that is, by their inability to keep the law and the consequences that came from it, Salvation has come to the Gentiles, right? That is the period for the church, to make them, Israel, jealous. And then secondly, we heard earlier, if you're in the Matthew study here, you'll know what I'm talking about immediately, but in earlier parts of this study, we also talked about the fact that Jesus said to the nation of Israel when he left after his first coming, that they wouldn't see him again until the time that Israel Called out to him, saying, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We saw this in Luke. In Luke 13, at the end there, Jesus speaking to the nation after they've rejected him says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together like a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not have it. Or in other words, you have rejected your Messiah. And then he says, behold, your house is left to you desolate, and I say to you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So this is now moving to the second coming of Christ, which is where we are now. And let me stitch this together for you. Jesus set the terms for his second coming. And what were the terms for his second coming? What moves him out of heaven and to earth in chapter 19? We see it happening in chapter 19. In a short time, we'll look at it. But the fundamental question is, what triggered it? What prompted it? And Jesus said to the nation of Israel, they would not see him again or until they call out on him in a specific way, that they must as a nation receive the Messiah that the prior generation rejected. And the trial of tribulation, the difficulty of these seven years, culminating in in this pressure cooker attack on the last holdout of Jews on earth that haven't believed produces the circumstances under which the nation of Israel will experience that change of heart and embrace their Messiah. And even before the Lord came to Israel the first time at the first century coming, the first coming, even before that, the old covenant foretold this exact outcome Not just the outcome of them getting in trouble with the covenant, but also the outcome that they would reject their Messiah and the outcome that eventually they would receive him after a period of trial. The whole story is told in the Old Covenant. In Leviticus 26, verse 40, we get to the end of that story, so to speak, where the Lord acknowledges how Israel will eventually receive the Messiah that they previously rejected. He says, if they confess their iniquity, this is speaking of the nation of Israel, If they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their forefathers in their unfaithfulness which they committed against me, and also in their acting with hostility against me, I was acting with hostility against them to bring them into the land of their enemies, or if their uncircumcised heart becomes humbled so that they make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob, and I will remember also my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham as well, and I will remember the land. So Leviticus says... After Israel has experienced the curses required by the Old Covenant, and for our sake, we can sum those curses up this way, the age of the Gentiles. That whole period of history from Nebuchadnezzar, which we studied in here, all the way through to the Antichrist and the very end of tribulation where we are now, that whole period of history has the intent of fulfilling the curses of the Old Covenant. But at the very end of that, Leviticus says they can experience a change of heart as a nation. And in the law, God provided this provision of grace. I call it a loophole in the sense that it allows Israel to escape from out under the law and be dealt with by uh, a different covenant, the covenant of grace. Well, what gives Israel the opportunity to get out from under the curses of the law and to receive what God would give them in the form of the kingdom? Well, the loophole in Leviticus 26 says that on the basis of faith alone, God is willing, to give them what he promised Abraham and Abraham's descendants without any more requirements of the law being fulfilled. Well, what has to be done? Well, first, according to what's up on the screen, each Jew must confess their own sin and their need for a Savior. Look, that's the gospel. That's coming to faith. That's the same thing we all did. That, that step is not unique. That step is common to all who will receive salvation. But, and, and by the way, that is sufficient repentance for every single Jew who does that to be out from under the law. But interestingly, there's still the nation's rescue from the law overall. That is, there is still this requirement that the nation fulfill the covenant, not just a given individual here or there. So all Israel has to do this. And the old covenant stipulates what will produce this national movement of repentance. Not merely individuals here and there, but the whole nation. And that's the second step In Leviticus 26.40, Israel will make a national confession of repentance for the sins of their forefathers. Now, that's clearly not a step required for personal salvation. We are not told in the Bible that we have to confess your father's sin in order to be saved. That's not the issue here. The first step is what gave somebody personal salvation. This is something unique to Israel required by their unique old covenant. And what is this specific unique thing? They must acknowledge that the first coming of Christ, they missed. They have to acknowledge that as a nation, their Messiah had already come. Not merely that they are coming to an awareness that Jesus is Messiah. They have to acknowledge that Jesus is the Jesus of Nazareth that our forefathers put on a cross. And as a result, the nation is repenting of their sin of rejecting Messiah, as an individual, also is confessing their personal sin and their need for a Messiah. The two together produce a unique moment in history, a national confession of faith in Christ and a national recognition of their sin under the old covenant. And as a result of that, the Lord says when that happens, he will remember a different covenant. When the Bible says that God remembers, like when it says he remembered Noah after a a period of time in the boat, (laughs) or he remembers this here. That's not a way of saying God forgot. It's a unique biblical term that means he is now assigned the timing of his fulfillment. That remembering the covenant is a way of saying, I'm now prepared to fulfill it. I'm now prepared to do what I've promised all along. The time of fulfillment has come. That's what remembering means. So, when the Lord says he's remembering the Abrahamic covenant, he's saying all the promises that were made to Abraham and his descendants in that covenant will come to pass for the nation when they do this Leviticus 26 loophole. And it makes sense if you think about it. When do you receive the promises of the new covenant? When you confess Christ. They don't materialize in that moment, but Paul says in Ephesians, you have been seated at the right hand, you have received these things, it's only a matter of when they're delivered. Okay? And on a national level, we're saying the same thing. Israel has been promised something, but that promise becomes real for the nation when the nation satisfies the requirements of the old covenant, coming out from under it, that is. So the Bible says all Israel will make this confession at some point. When they make this confession, the kingdom will be theirs. And according to what Jesus said in Luke 13, that will also be when he comes back to them. It all coincides to that moment. So I boil all of that down this way, in a very simple sentence. The tribulation causes Israel so much turmoil that it moves their hearts to confess Christ as a nation, and as a result, Christ returns, ending the tribulation, and bringing the kingdom which God promised Abraham. It all comes together in that moment. So we are looking at a process in the middle of the war of Armageddon, in which God is moving the chess pieces on this board to get Israel ready for the moment that he's been talking about since Moses. That they would confess him, and in that confession, he would make everything right for them on earth. Paul summarizes it for us in Romans 11 this way. I don't want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, and that is what we're learning here. We're unveiling a mystery that's been embedded in scripture for centuries and millennia, and now we're seeing the whole thing come together He says, I don't want you to be wise in your own estimation, which I believe is a statement intended to warn those who would think Israel is either no longer God's people or the future for Israel no longer includes their inclusion in the plan of God. Those people need to not be wise in their own estimation. But rather, understand this, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel, partial because there is a remnant, but a partial hardening has happened to Israel until... The fullness of the Gentiles has come in until the Gentile age has reached its end. And at that point, he says, all Israel will be saved. Just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So notice, Paul says all Israel, and this gets some people confused because we don't know what that means necessarily. But in context, what Paul is saying is, you notice he's kind of carrying this through a timeline that for now Israel is hardened, apart from a remnant, and then there'll be a time when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, and then all Israel will be saved. And in the sense of a timeline, he's saying at a point in time, all who are on the earth and are Jewish will be saved. Not all who've ever lived, not all through the history of time, but all who are around on that moment. All Israel of that day will be saved. Not a Jew left unsaved on the earth at that moment. Why? Because they're all going to confess Jesus, as we just saw in Leviticus. And notice that moment comes in the context of the Deliverer, Jesus, coming from Zion. Now, Zion here is the same Zion we saw in chapter 14, where the 144,000 were present with Jesus on Mount Zion, but that was the heavenly Mount Zion. So Jesus coming from Zion is a reference to Jesus coming from heaven, So when the Deliverer comes from Zion, he does so, that is at his second coming, to remove ungodliness from Jacob or Israel, as we would say. This second coming is associated with God removing sin from Israel. As they confess, as Daniel 9 told us, the tribulation results in removing sin, iniquity from Israel, ushering in everlasting righteousness. So it all comes together in the same moment. Every living Jew on earth confesses Christ, every living Jew on earth being saved as a result. That prompts Christ in return because he said that's what he's waiting for. And as he comes back, it says he removes ungodliness from Jacob. And then notice in verse 27, this is my covenant with them. Which covenant? It might be fast to say, well, this is the covenant of Abraham, but Abraham's covenant didn't promise this. Abraham's covenant promised the kingdom. This is the old covenant. The old covenant's promise is that when they confess, he will remember the Abrahamic covenant. When they do this, he will come for them. This is the fulfillment, remember Jesus said that the old covenant will last until it is fulfilled. This is the fulfillment of the covenant when it has finally done all that it was intended to do and has now fully been finished. What is the finishing act of the old covenant? To bring Israel into the kingdom in faith. Why is there a kingdom to come into? Because the Abrahamic covenant said he would give one to them. And he uses the old covenant as the means by which he fulfills the Abrahamic covenant. Does that make sense? The Abrahamic covenant being unconditional, he was going to give it to them, period. But the old covenant is the mechanism that he used to achieve that outcome, to bring it about. That's why Jesus makes this promise to Israel at a point in the Olivet Discourse Speaking of the tribulation and speaking about Israel in the tribulation, he says, the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. The gospel of the kingdom shall be preached, in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. This is a unique moment in history, the only time in history when we can say just staying alive guarantees you salvation if you're a Jew. Because at the end of tribulation, as Jesus is speaking about it here, will be a time of such intense pressure that it will be hard to endure. That is, it will be hard to escape death. It'll be hard to be there on that day. But if they are there on that day, if you are a Jew on the last day of tribulation, when all of these events carry off, you will be saved because you will believe because that is part of what God is doing to bring about Christ's second coming. If you endure to the end, you will be saved if you're Jewish in that time. All right, so at the end of tribulation... That's where we stand now, in the middle of this pressure cooker with uh, three stages of the war past, two, uh, two more yet to come, three more yet to come, and, or two more yet to come, sorry. And at a certain point in this battle, the unbelieving Jews who are in Jerusalem are going to be moved to confess in Christ. That's what we just studied. Jesus is in heaven with, her, with the, the bride, with us. We're made ready to return home. We studied that last week. Babylon is gone. The rest of the world is in ruins. Food and water are running out. Antichrist is positioned right where God wants him. The believing Jews on earth are in Petra. They're alive and well. They're being protected by the Lord, but they've got a, an army outside their walls too. And then you have the unbelieving Jews who are in Jerusalem, and they are hunkered down behind the wall, pleading with God for their rescue as a, a stronger army outside the walls, is working to come in. And all that's remaining is for that group of unbelieving Jews, who are in that city, in Jerusalem, to obey the Lord's demand that, he would, that they would declare him as Messiah, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. If they would just take that step, then Israel will be saved, Jesus returns, the tribulation's over, Antichrist loses, it's all over but the crime at that point. so. How does Israel move to that last step? How does Israel reach a point where every living Jew is of the same mind to say the same thing at the same time? And in the answer, you're going to find out how, in effect, everyone is saved. Luke 18, Jesus says this. Things that are impossible with people are possible with God. So if salvation was only a matter of our individual perspective and decision-making and intellect and timing and judgment, etc., I think it's fair to say it would be literally impossible for any group of people, no matter who they are or where they are, to reach the same conclusion simultaneously. We would never expect that. But if God is responsible for the outcome, well, then anything can happen. So now we turn to the events of the war that are on the Jerusalem front as they relate to this critical moment of Israel's coming to faith. And it starts in Zechariah, Zechariah 14, describing the moment of this front of war in Jerusalem. He says, Behold, the day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city will be captured, the houses plundered, the women ravished, half of the city exiled, but the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. All right, this is the first description we work on tonight about what's going on in the city. I want you to imagine you have the siege, the siege ramps, the, you know, the horses, all the chariots, whatever they got, and they make a way through the wall at some point or get over the top of it. And Zechariah says in this day when the battle is ensuing around the city, he says the ultimate outcome will be the tables will be turned. Instead of Israel always being the vanquished and the one who has spoil taken from her, he says at the end of all this, you're gonna be dividing up the enemy's spoil. You're gonna be the victor but then he says how it happens, and it doesn't start well. Uh, Israel starts off with an attack that results in the Antichrist making his way into the city, at least to a degree. And as he breaches the walls, it says here, part of the city will be captured. Half the city will be exiled, and women who were a part of that will be sexually assaulted, as, as we know often happens in warfare. But the Lord, we know already, is intervening to protect the city. We heard that earlier. But now what we're learning is his protection was partial, intentionally so. He's not preventing the city from seeing anything happen. He's just preventing the Antichrist from having a full victory over the city. And in his providence, he allows half the city to be captured and presumably killed. And what's left now is half the city still fighting, still intact, people still there in the city, but under much greater pressure, having seen half the city already taken. Earlier in Zechariah 12, the prophet explains the purpose in all this. Verse 2 of chapter 12, he says, I'm going to make Jerusalem a cup that causes reeling to all the peoples around. And when the siege is against Jerusalem, it will also be against Judah. And it will come about in that day that I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples, and all who lift it will be severely injured. All the nations of the earth will be gathered against it. So the Lord sets a trap, in effect, for the Antichrist. He lures him in, not only to the outskirts of the city, but he actually lures him into the city, as it were, giving him an opportunity to gain some measure of success. But the end effect of this is going to be his defeat. And as a result, the city itself is terrified. I mean, that's not hard to imagine, given what's going on. And the Antichrist, having captured half of the city, is emboldened to continue. But as Zechariah 12 told us last week, this partial victory is merely a setup for his total defeat. Zechariah 12.8 says, in that day the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem and one is who is feeble among them in that day will be like David and the house of David will be like God, like the angel of the Lord before them and in that day I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. All right, so we sit at the pivotal moment. It looks like all is lost. The city is this close to being overrun and if it is, there'll be no Jews left to call out on Jesus. None who haven't already believed. And if there are no Jews left to turn to faith and call for Messiah from that turn to faith, well, then what would bring Jesus back? I mean, theoretically, he has set the requirement for his second coming as a nation of unbelieving Jews who turn to him and say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, no unbelieving Jews left means no opportunity for that call. No opportunity for that call means, well, then perhaps no second coming. I mean, in theory, And it's for that reason that the enemy has always made Israel his enemy. Because he understands, I believe, that much at least, that Israel is the key to Christ's coming. Not only his first coming, but also his second coming. And if it were possible for the enemy to wipe Israel off the map through whatever means, whatever country or culture or opposing force, then it could mean that there'd be none left to call on the name of the Lord. And then the enemy would apparently have Uh, a free reign here forever. I mean, that's, again, in theory. But that's his reason. That's his argument for going after the Jewish people because they are the key to Christ's second coming. And never is that greater than in this moment when the enemy is this close, this close to getting what he wants. And then the turn happens. Zechariah 12.10. When God's ready to set the trap, he says, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the Spirit. Of grace and of supplication, so that they will look on me, whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. You know, as with every work of salvation, the Lord is the first one to move. And he moves at the eleventh hour, at a point where the nation is apparently on the verge of annihilation. And how does he move? He sends his spirit. He pours out his spirit, and it says in the text, he pours it out on two related groups. First, the house of David. Secondly, the inhabitants of Jerusalem. The house of David is a reference to the ruling class. That's a terminology that refers back to the kings that came out of David's line. So to those who are responsible for ruling the nation, they will be included in this. And then, of course, those who inhabit the city is a broad reference to all who live in the city, the Jewish population that's still alive, that half that's still there. Remember, some have been taken away, but we still have half that's remaining. And it's that group that, as a result of the pouring out of the Spirit, begins to make a national confession. And what does that confession look like? Well, it starts with them looking upon the historical Jesus that they have long rejected, in fact... Typically, Jews spit at the name of Jesus. They have opposed him with great anger and fervor. They view it as as an oppressing force. Christianity is viewed as an enemy of Judaism and so on. And suddenly, it all switches. By the outpouring of the Spirit, Jews, one to a person, perceive him as the Messiah sent to Israel. And in the same moment, they also remember he was pierced. He was put on a cross by his own people. And as a result, The instinctive response of this coming to faith, of this recognition that God has poured out on them, the instinctive response is not one of joy. It's one of mourning. They mourn for Jesus, it says, as someone would mourn if your only son had just died, which is a subtle reference to the Son of God. So those remaining Jews who are barricaded in the city receive the gift of faith, coming to faith, as we would say, by the movement of the Spirit, as all do, But the effect of it being an instant recognition of Jesus, it doesn't feel like good news to these people. Why? Because their belief in this case leads them to believe they've lost their hope. That it's a belief in Jesus after the fact, and it causes them to question whether he would ever come back for them now. That is, we got our chance and we lost it. We as a nation had him and we killed him. And now, in this moment of great need, when they were crying out to God for some kind of relief, it's now a recognition that he'll, he's not going to save us. We, we killed him. Why would he save us now? We've lost our chance. He's mad at us. You know that The thought that they have moved beyond God's reach as a result. And so they expect him to move on rather than to save them. But remember what Leviticus 26 said. I will remember my covenant with Abraham. The Lord's response to Israel is not based on work. That is, it's not based on the old covenant. At the moment of the confession, he stops dealing with them according to the terms of the old covenant. Because as you confess Christ, you come out from under that covenant. So instantly, as the nation confesses Christ, they are no longer being uh, approached by God in the terms of the old covenant Instantly, he is now dealing with them under the terms of the Abrahamic covenant, which is a one way, unconditional, grace oriented covenant. We often say it is the organic source of the new covenant because the new covenant comes in the manner of the Abrahamic, a grant of God to us that we would be part of a kingdom, a part of a descendant, spiritual descendants of Abraham. So, In that moment, the Lord begins to move on the basis of grace unconditionally, and he will come back to them. Zechariah says this, in that day, speaking of the same moment, there will be great mourning in Jerusalem, like the mourning of Hamadridden in the plain of Megiddo. The land will mourn every family by itself. And as we study this, look at the unique way in which God has moved among these people the family of the house of David by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the Shimeites by itself and their wives by themselves, all the families that remain, notice, all the families that remain, every family by itself, their wives by themselves. So two things are made clear as we finish this passage everyone who's left is coming to faith. There's no one not involved in this moment. Consistent with what we've studied, Paul said all Israel will be saved. Secondly, in dividing that group of Jews up into four here, Zechariah is also making clear to us that no strata within culture and society is being missed. That the entire spectrum of Judaism is involved in this. From the ruling class, David, to the prophets, Nathan, to the priests, Levites, to the common Jews, Shimeites, which is a reference to something out of Second Samuel. In other words, the great, the small, the learned, the uneducated, the privileged, and the ordinary, all of them coming to faith in Jesus in exactly the same moment as a result of the outpouring of the Spirit. And this is not a matter of groupthink or mass delusion or a revival tent, you know, emotional experience. This, as you see, happens to each Jew, each family by itself. Not even conventional evangelism explains this. It's not as though somebody figured it out because God showed it to them, and then that person told somebody, and then that person told... No, no, they're all by themselves. They all walk out of their homes or wherever they're hiding, and they look at each other, and they all have exactly the same experience. Individually, which, of course, makes the whole thing self-evidently a work of God. And there's a beautiful psalm that captures the thinking of the Jewish people in this moment. In other words, there's a prophetic psalm that speaks about what will be thought by Jews as they experience this. That's Psalm 79. And it's a not too long a psalm, so I'm going to read the whole of it, 13 verses. It says, "'O God, the nations have invaded your inheritance.'" The nations. This is speaking of the attack on the city. "'They have defiled your holy temple. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins.'" They have given the dead bodies of your servants for food to the birds of the heavens, the flesh of your godly ones to the beasts of the earth. They've poured out their blood like water round about Jerusalem, and there is no one to bury them. We have become a reproach to our neighbors, a scoffing and derision to those around us. How long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Pour out your wrath upon the nations which do not know you, and upon the kingdoms which do not call upon your name. For they have devoured Jacob and have laid waste his habitation. Do not remember the iniquities of our forefathers. Notice, do not remember the iniquities of our forefathers against us. Let your compassion come quickly to meet us, for we are brought very low. Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name, and deliver us and forgive our sins for your namesake. Why should the nation say, Where is their God? Let them be known among the nations in our sight. Vengeance for the blood of your servants which have been shed. Let the groaning of the prisoner come before you. According to the greatness of your power, preserve those who are doomed to die. So he says, and return to our neighbors sevenfold into their bosom the reproach with which they have reproached you, O Lord. So we, your people, and the sheep of your pasture will give thanks to you forever. To all generations we will tell of your praise. That gives you a sense of what the Jews are thinking, at least in a poetic form. The very next psalm, Psalm 80, is the confession moment. Now you can take time to read it. It's long. But let me just give you the heart of it, a, a short series of verses. Psalm 80, verse 14. O God of hosts, turn again now, we beseech you. Look down from heaven and see and take care of this vine, even the shoot which your right hand has planted and on the sun whom you have strengthened for yourself. It is burned with fire, it is cut down. They perish at the rebuke of your countenance. Let your hand be upon the man of your right hand, upon the son of man whom you've made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Revive us and we will call upon your name. O Lord, God of hosts, restore us. Cause your face to shine upon us and we will be saved. So in that poetic uh, phrase or or, or phraseology, they call upon the son of God who God has strengthened for himself and they, they say this shoot, and that's a reference back to the shoot of Jesse, Jesus, is burned with fire and cut down. That's a reference back to the original time that he came to Israel. And they were recognizing their history of having rejected Messiah. And then nevertheless, they say, may the Lord's hand be upon the Son of God, which is a way of saying, may you send him back to us again. Can we have a second try, please? And they say, if you do this, we promise we will not turn back from him this time. And if you should revive us, we'll call upon your name and we know we'll be saved. So there is a sense of mourning, but also a sense of opportunity that perhaps the Lord will give them another opportunity. This is what they'll be saying in so many words. So the climactic moment of Christ's second coming is not the moment he puts his foot on the ground, I would argue. It's this call that precipitates his departure from heaven. And Hosea, the, the prophet Hosea tells us the precise moment when they reach this, this decision to confess Christ. In chapter six, he says... This is Israel speaking in the first person. Come, let us return to the Lord. For he has torn us, but he will heal us. He has wounded us, but he will bandage us. He will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day that we may live before him. So let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going forth is as certain as the dawn. And he will come to us like the rain, like the spring rain watering the earth. Hosea says that the Lord's revival of Israel will happen after two days. What we're learning, and this is in the context of Hosea overall, which is a a minor prophet talking about tribulation. And in this moment of the book, he's talking about this last battle in Jerusalem, and he says two days will go past with the Antichrist sieging the city, breaking through, taking half the people, and so on. On the third day of this siege is when the Spirit will be poured out, as Zechariah said, and the nation will respond and Jesus will come back. So the siege only lasts a total of three days and the third day is when Jesus ends it. So the Jews have called out for Jesus at this point. What goes on in heaven? Well, obviously Jesus hears the call and now that the bride is ready and we're all on our horses, ready to come down with Jesus, so to speak, as it's described, here we have the second coming of Jesus. And I saw heaven opened And behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron." and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. So as we said earlier, this description of his second coming is a high level summary. It doesn't take into account any of the things we just looked at. And more than that, it's a perspective from heaven. John is writing this from someone who sees it happening from up there. And as you might expect, the experience of this from below on earth is quite different. So we get the up above version here and we'll leave the book again to see what it's like when you were on the ground watching this happen because we get that perspective elsewhere in the Old Testament. So let's start with what John gives us here as he sees it from above. He says first heaven is opened and I think what he means is literally heaven becomes open and visible from the earth. You'll see why I believe that in a minute. When we get to the vision from the earth you'll see why. Meanwhile, we have Jesus at the head of a great procession here. He's depicted in his glorified form. If you remember back in chapter one, we saw Jesus depicted by John there on the island of Patmos, same description. Every time we see Jesus described in the Bible is after he has come or in future prophecy, he's always in this form. So the form he took when he was on earth is the exception. His normal form is like this. It's what he looked like before he came. It's what he looks like after he's resurrected. So the time he spent on earth is the aberration, not the norm as we've studied. Anyway, flaming eyes, diadems, you know, crowns, etc. It says he has a name in this moment, unknown to anyone, a name above all names. So what that tells us is the names by which we know Jesus today, whether that's Yeshua or Jesus or Jesus, or you pick one, all right, that's not his name. That is to say, that is a name for the now and the, and the time being. And it is not the long-term name of Jesus. It's not his permanent name, if you will. We'll know him by a new name for the kingdom. Now, that name, whatever it is, will still mean the word of God. But it's not a word we know now, which I think makes foolish these arguments people get into over whether we should call Jesus by one thing or another. It doesn't matter. You're wrong. You're all wrong. I mean, we only know what we know now, and eventually we'll be using something different. Nonetheless, he'll have a new name then. And John says, as he comes, he's riding a white horse. We've seen this before in the book of Revelation? When did we last see someone riding a white horse? That's the moment we saw the the Antichrist appear, remember, in the first seal judgments? So that is the Bible's symbology for a leader. That's why we said back then that a man coming on a white horse is a picture of a man coming to rule, and this time we're seeing the ruler. The ruler the one who will be the replacement for that false one that came earlier. But notice his robe. His robe is dipped in blood. Why? Now, if you run too quickly to uh, symbology from elsewhere in the scripture without looking at the context, remember the rules for interpretation of symbols. Symbols in the Bible are used consistently, and I look for the, revelation, the, the Bible to interpret them for me. And where do I start? Where do I go first to find what the Bible thinks the symbol means or says In the immediate context, in the immediate moment of where the the symbol itself is being used. If I don't find it there, then the next place I would go in order is the rest of the book. That author, in his writing, what did he say? And if I don't find it there, I go to somewhere else in the Bible. But I'll find it if I look. In this case, if you go and you reverse that order, let's say you go to the rest of the Bible first you're gonna get the wrong answer because in this context, there's a very specific use of it. It's not the common use. It's a new use, a different use. What would we commonly think that blood means in the Bible when it comes to Jesus? His blood, and if, if such, it's a payment, an atoning work, right? A covering of our sin. But here, verse 15 tells us where this blood comes from. It's from Jesus striking down the nations and trampling the wine press of the wrath of God. And that's why it's at his feet, because that's where he's trampling. So the point is, Jesus is coming, notice it says at the outset, he is coming to wage war, verse 11. 13, robe dipped in blood, armies coming with him, mouth has a sharp sword, striking down the nations, treading the winepress of the fierce wrath of God. This is an opposite situation from his first coming. In the first coming of Christ, the gospels tell us he came with the intent to show mercy and forgiveness, not to show judgment. Well, the subtext, the implied comment that comes with that is, oh, but at his next coming, it won't be that way. And here you see it. No one on earth at this point will ever challenge Jesus' rule again. He is coming to be the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and before he sets up his government and his kingdom of righteousness, he has to dispense with all the ungodliness that remains on earth. And he does that in a violent way. Uh, For anyone who might find that difficult to grasp, it's because you're seeing only one side of God, the side that we know of him from his first coming, the side we're very happy to know because it's done so much for us in mercy and in grace, and hallelujah for it. But you can't appreciate that side of God unless you also appreciate the other side of God, which is a God of wrath for sin. You can't know how good your salvation is unless you can understand what you've been saved from. So God is a God with both sides to his nature. And he's righteous, of course, in both. So as Jesus comes, he's followed by armies, we're told. Now, notice, at first it says armies clothed in fine clean white linen. We saw that earlier in this same chapter. Who were those who were clothed in white linen? Clean and bright. The the bride which is a specific reference to the church saints. So, who are the church saints? All that were resurrected at the rapture, i.e. you guys. This is another description of yourself. You will be on a horse, I don't know if it's a metaphoric horse, if it's a spiritual horse, if it's a real horse, it'll be something. But you're on a horse, and you're following Jesus in this moment, so your vantage point for the second coming of Christ is looking at the backside of Jesus' horse, as we all ride in on that day. Yeah, it's a great place to be, of all the places you could choose, right? Um, Now, we're called an army, but we do none of the fighting. And yet, at the same time, it's an exciting place to see. You have got a great seat for this for what's coming, and you know, as I told you at times past, you're reading about a future event here in which you will participate, which I find really fascinating to think about. You're you know like a movie where you go forward in time and go back. You're you're looking at the your own life at some moment in the future. And I can't say whether it's gonna be tomorrow or then it can't be tomorrow. It's gotta be at least seven years from any given day, right? But I can tell you this, it's gonna happen. You're gonna be there based on faith alone. Jesus also tells us at another place in the Bible, in Matthew 16, that there's another army there as well. We are there, we are an army, but Jesus says, for the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then they will repay every man according to his deeds. So there's another army, as you, as you might think of it, of angels that are coming with us too. So in amongst us, there's angels, there's, there's the saints, we have horses, Jesus riding ahead of us. It's like a big parade coming down from heaven. All right, now, let's move with them. Let's go quickly, we're almost done. Let's just go quickly to the earth perspective, and that's what we end in tonight. What does this look like when you're standing on the earth? Now, we won't be there, but some will, obviously. The earth will still have people on it, both believing and unbelieving. So... The believing will be those who've managed to survive the second half of tribulation without dying, including the Jews in Petra, among others, we'll talk about next week. But the rest of the world, those who are in the Antichrist's army and following him as their God, they've taken the mark and all the rest, they're the unbelieving. They're all there waiting, not knowing it's gonna happen necessarily, but here it happens. Jesus says, if you were on the earth when this happens, it will start with great disturbances in the heavens, even greater than those that took place in the earlier tribulation judgments. He says this in Matthew twenty four twenty nine. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, all right. so after the tribulation, which is to say at the very end, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of heavens will be shaken. Now stop there for a minute. Let's do a count. Of all the sources of light in the universe, let's name them within our, from our point of view here on the earth? The sun, the moon, the stars. Anything I'm missing? There are no lights. None. Utter and complete blackness on the earth as a starting point for this return. And then verse 30, then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. Now what do you think the sign is? I would argue that it's the opening of heaven that John saw from the top. The sign is simply a way of saying, a way of catching your attention, the mark, the sign, the, the omen, something that we, directs people's attention. They see something. Now keep in mind, if there's utter darkness and not a single source of light anywhere in the universe, then any light at all is going to be where you fix your eyes. What else are you going to look at? All, then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn and will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great Glory. So, as the lights of the universe go away and the light of the heavens opens up, and Jesus comes through that with us following, the whole world has no choice but to look. What else are they going to look at? And God has orchestrated that moment for that purpose, so that all the world will see and recognize Christ's second coming. Zechariah confirms this description in Zechariah fourteen six. He says, speaking of the same moment, in that day there will be no light. The luminaries will dwindle, for it will be a unique day, which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night. Now think about that. If you don't have a moon and you don't have a sun, is it day? Is it night? It's night. It's nothing. The things that mark day and night are gone. So it's, it's a unique day. Never been a day like this before, with no sun, no moon, no stars. And that's why it's neither day nor night. But it will come about that at evening time, there will be light. The, the paradox that he's describing is this idea of it's totally dark, like evening, but yet there's light from Jesus' second coming. So you've got to give the guy credit. He's doing his best to describe this utterly you know, unique set of circumstances that he doesn't have any reference to, because when would he have ever seen anything like this? No sun, no moon, no stars, but there's light, but it's not day, but it's... Da- you know. It's this strange conundrum that he tries to describe, but he does a pretty good job. A complete blackout, leaving the earth in utter darkness, Jesus appearing. Now, you may remember earlier in Matthew. Uh, In chapter 24, we studied this in this course a ways back. Jesus warned the church not to follow after those who come saying, I am he. Remember that? He was telling, he was giving us signs of the end of the age. And he said, people, false messiahs will come, but they will do not follow after them, right? Why was he so confident to tell us, no matter what someone tries to tell you, if they say they're Jesus and they've come back, you can flat out always say they're wrong. How do we know they're always wrong? Because when Jesus comes back, number one, you're with him. But, but secondly, even if you're one of the people who are still on the earth in this case, you're not going to miss him. There's no way to miss the second coming of Christ. You don't have to be told by someone at a coffee bar that they're actually Jesus, because the moment that it happens, there'll be nothing else to look at except his second coming. So here's where we leave tonight. We leave tonight with Jesus in midair, uh, returning to save Israel. It's a bit of a cliffhanger. Next week, We complete the War of Armageddon, the last two stages, stage four and stage five, and the reason we haven't touched on them yet is because Jesus is the central character in both stages of the battle. These two stages of the battle are actually carried out by Jesus himself personally, and the result of these battles will be the complete destruction of the Antichrist forces on both fronts. So stage four will be his attack on Botsra and Petra. And stage five, the final stage, is his arrival at Jerusalem and his rescue of the Jews there and the defeat of the Antichrist at Jerusalem. And then after that, with that, we've finished tribulation, for what it's worth. The whole study of tribulation within the book of Revelation will be finished next week. What comes after that are all of the transitionary events that lead us out of tribulation into the time of the kingdom from which then we will have an extended period of time of study of what life in the kingdom will be like. Following that into the new heavens and new earth at chapters 21 and 22. And that includes some of the most fascinating prophecy in all of the Bible. Um, starting next week or the week after next with the 75 day interval, which m- many Christians are not aware of. This is a period that the scriptures tell us exists between tribulation and the start of the kingdom. 75 days are sandwiched between those two periods of history. So we will learn about that. All right, so we have plenty left to go. Uh, we've reached the second coming of Christ, but, you know, doesn't mean you have reason not to come. We've got lots left to talk about. As always, we will finish tonight in prayer and Q&A if you have any questions. Let's pray. Father, I have uh, one prayer, the prayer J- uh, John gives us. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Uh, for us, that's the coming of the Lord for the church, and we look forward to that, Father, with great anticipation. How How wonderful it would be, Father, if you would just take us away from all that we're seeing around the world today. We'll leave it to the enemy. Uh, But, Father, in the meantime, as long as we're here, give us a heart for those who are suffering and in fear and in worry. What a great time, Father, for us to be able to bring a message of hope. I pray, Father, you would give us the words for those who need them. And, Father, bring us back here in weeks to come. As I say every week, we don't want to miss what you have for us in this book. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.